hard to beat Michelle's bell ringer joke. <laughs> but um, my mom told me a cute one. She comes out with a few beats once in a while. And um, this one's about a guy in Texas. He's a rancher. Always dirty and dusty being on the ranch. And he's walking through town one day and he goes by a church. Loves the music coming from the church. So he figures, well, I'm Mandarin. And went in, heard the service, loved it. Preaches at the doorway, greeting everybody, and he sees the guy's nose. He says, so what did you think of the service? And the rancher says, fabulous. He says, you think you might come next week? He says, I might meander on it. He says, well, preacher says to him, if you're going to come here next week, you might want to think about changing your clothes. I want to put something a little different on. And so uh, the guy says, well, what should I do? He says, go home and pray and ask the Lord what you should wear. So the following week, the uh, ranch comes back in. He's still dirty. Still looks like he did last week. So he sits through the service on the way out. The preacher says, Did you not do what I asked you to do? Did you not pray to the Lord and ask what you should wear? And the rancher said, Yeah. And he says, Well, what's the deal? He said, He couldn't help me. He doesn't go here either. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was... That's my mom's kind of joke. <laughs> um, I also want to apologize for not having... Um, an overhead, I did have a, an outline, however, my printer and I had a fight last night and we're not speaking. Mm -hmm. So, today we're doing Romans chapter 13 on government, a favorite subject. And um, I bit my lip a few times last night and was bleeding in front of my computer. Um, last week we did, um, well, Michelle did the lecture on uh, Romans chapter 12 and the first verse talking about, Paul talking about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. How important is that? And everything he said in that chapter just kind of naturally flows into 13 because he gets into some deeper and tougher stuff that um, sometimes we just don't want to deal with. And sometimes we make light of it. And um, we really shouldn't. It's important. Chapter 13 uh, deals with three main topics. Uh, verses 1 through 7 deal with the Christian's responsibility towards government. And verses 8 through 10 explains that uh, love is really the fulfillment of the law. And verses 11 through 14, Paul closes out with the importance of putting on Christ in our daily walk. So we're going to start with the government, Christians' responsibility towards government. Verses 1 through 7, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 only because it, it kind, of, kind of smushes all together. And it is kind of long, and normally I would break it up, but I really felt like it belonged together. So I'm going to read, starting in uh, chapter 13, let's read. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what's evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. That's always fun. Um, and it says, 
Your rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom customers due, and fear to whom fear, and honor to honor. Paul's writing, and when he writes this, he says, in some translations it says every soul, but he writes that it's every person's responsibility to obey the government. He excludes no one. Yet there are some groups, fringe groups, um, well, maybe even individual people, but there are a lot of fringe groups out there that have cut themselves off from the government. I was reading the other day about a group called Sovereign Citizens. Um, this group has come up with the idea that they're sovereign. God made them sovereign. And um, so they don't have to pay taxes. They don't have to follow any of the laws of the land. And so that works out great. I think they're living in the mountains somewhere. But the point is, is that... Um, I think the Bible sees it a lot differently. Uh, if we lived by this um, philosophy, we would, there'd be anarchy. We would kill each other. And if there's any doubt in anyone's mind whether or not God is sovereign, Psalms just nails it right on the head. Psalms 103.19, Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. And Psalm 115.3, but our God is in the heaven and does whatever he pleases. So, no, Paul, Paul writes that every man is to obey. And in the New American Standard, um, it translates the word obey into subject. Be subject to the governing authorities. The Greek translation of this word, subject, is to line up under. It is actually um, a military term, and it's used for soldiers lining up under their commander. And this is how God expects us to behave towards our government. Paul expands on this by telling us that all authorities, whether they be president, governor, even a police officer, are all instituted and placed there by God himself. So in resisting and rebelling against the authorities, we're actually resisting and rebelling against God. There are reasons that governments exist, and these verses explain it. Um, there are Actually, in some of the commentaries I read, it went on and on and on, seven reasons, ten reasons, for but the two major ones, for, for time's sake, is um, to restrain and punish evil, and for the protection of the good of the citizenship, people. Just think what it would be like if we didn't have authority. We'd wipe each other out by lunchtime. So, um, it, is, it is for our good. God also sometimes uses governments as an instrument of judgment. As seen throughout all of scripture, um, Israel was punished and carried away by the wicked uh, people of Assyria and Babylon uh, also. In the New Testament, Jerusalem was sacked by uh, Ro the Romans under Titus in 70 AD. And God will eventually, in the end, use the government um, of the Antichrist to uh, judge the world. And that's in the book of Revelation. So people might say, well, I, I really, I can't possibly respect and obey my government or my leaders because they don't do the right thing. Um, some of them are oppressive. But Paul gives no exception to what kind of government we ought to obey. It doesn't matter. Listen, no one lived under a worse rulership than Paul and the apostles and Jesus. The Roman Empire, they weren't the sweetest bunch in town. I mean, you had um, one Herod that slaughtered all the babies, two-year-old babies, male babies, um, throughout Jerusalem. You have um, the other Herod cut John the Baptist's head off and served it on a platter. 
Um, and not to mention just the rest of what happened to everybody. I mean, they were not the sweetest bunch. So, and in, today we have our brothers and sisters who are in China and in Russia and all over the world who live under the most oppressive regimes. But they, they, their job is to remain obedient. Um, so living in America under the democracy that we have, it's not so bad. I mean, for the most part, our laws are good. I know some things are changing with the postmodern world we live in. We won't get into that, but um, it, it is changing. But for the most part, the laws are for our benefit. But we still enjoy freedoms uh, unknown to people in other parts of the world. But um, this lesson was very convicting to me because there is a growing sentiment, a growing attitude, uh, especially among American Christians, that reflects poorly on our testimony, and that is the slandering of our president. Um, I know in my workplace, um, they tell jokes about the president. I listen. I sometimes repeat them. Um, and that's not good. Uh, I do not pray for the leaders like I should. Um, and I think that this is a good lesson. Um, praying for them even if we don't agree with them. Praying for them even if we didn't vote for them. You know, it, because why God tells us to? Because we're actually rebelling against God by not doing that. And it is sin, and it is something that I need to repent from. And we all need to think about that in our hearts, if that's what we're doing. Now, I mentioned about um, uh, earlier about telling jokes. Also, um, thing, some of the things that I see, like even in the news about uh, open protesting, believers with unbelievers going to Washington, protesting. I, I do realize that our democratic system allows for us to have open protest, uh, peaceful protesting, um, to, to get our, our ideas across. But um, I think that the Bible has a lot to say about this. Who hasn't suffered from injustice? And who hasn't suffered from maybe the courts making a poor decision? Um, but we still have to come to some resolution in our souls with God about this. And I love the way First Peter puts it, First Peter 2, 13 through 20. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers doers, and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves to God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, and this is the good part, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin you're harshly treated and you endure it with patience? But when you do what's right and suffer for it patiently and endure it, this finds favor with God. And that, I thought, spoke volumes about how we are to be even when things are not looking good or going our way. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, I think, is another good one. First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. 
This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And the last scripture that I put in here is Titus 3, 1 through 2. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, and to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, and show consideration for every man. So, I mentioned the open protesting about, you know, through our government. As a Christian, we do have dual citizenship. We live here on earth, we're subject to the government, but our real citizenship is in heaven. This doesn't mean we shouldn't be good citizens in voting and using our democratic process to vote um, for godly leadership, for uh, on issues that are important to us. But what I mean is our message as believers really isn't one of social reform. When Jesus came, um, he used his energy um, to bring about spiritual reform. He never used his energy for social reform or earthly reform. He lived at a time where there were three slaves to one free man. Um, did he attempt to lead a revolt to stop slavery? No. His message was all about the gospel. And this is the message that we need to uh, to be brought to. We have to bring lost souls to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's really what we should be spending our energy on. Because it's the eternal value of things, not the temporal. The choice to exercise our democratic right needs to be used with caution. Just because something is lawful doesn't always mean it's the wisest thing to do. In other words, which is the greatest message? The social message or the gospel? In 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul even said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient, in other words, profitable, wise, or prudent. Now, I know this context um, in this verse is mainly about the body and food, but I still think the principle applies. He's saying, what is more important? Um, and Christ gave all believers their job description in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, ushering in a new world order isn't really our job. It's just a matter of priority, where we stand. Let's face it, whether we eliminate poverty, global warming, or save a whale, this pales in comparison to saving a soul from eternity in hell. Um, and one day, Peter says, this whole world and everything in it's going to burn with intense heat. So now Paul does not give any exceptions in this chapter to the rule in obeying our government. But are there any exceptions to the rule? Um, yes, there are. In the Old Testament, of course, we saw Daniel. We saw his three friends who refused to bow down to the idol and ended up in, well, God saved them, but they ended up in a, in a fiery furnace. In the New Testament, we have um, great examples of uh, Peter and John who couldn't stay out of trouble. And in Acts 4, um, Acts 4, 16 through 20, I'm going to read this section, just gives you an idea of what biblical civil disobedience looks like. So the council said, what shall we do with these men? The fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them, it's apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, we can't deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in, in this man's name. When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. So that was one time when they didn't go along with the authorities. Um, In Acts 5, the next chapter, it happened again. And when they had brought them before the council, the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you filled all of Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter said, hey, we must obey God rather than men. So back again, um, they got themselves, you know, they, they put themselves in a position where God was more important than what they wanted them to do. So the only exception to this rule is if the authorities order you to do what God has forbidden or to forbid you to do what God has commanded. This is why we should be so thankful that we live in a country that we can still have the right to assemble and to read the Bible and pray. We don't know if that's going to stay that way forever, you know, but um, we pray that our leaders will will not oppose that. But things are changing rapidly. And, um, of course, we must keep in mind that when we are called to civil disobedience, for the sake of Christ, not for the sake of social reform, that we must be prepared to suffer the consequences. All the Christians down through our history, Daniel, all through his history, all the martyrs, it, they died for their faith, they were suffered for their faith, they lost freedom for their faith, and we need to be prepared for the consequences if that happens. Our brothers and sisters all over the world today are suffering because they don't live in the kind of society we live in. Now, the last verses concerning obeying authorities is pretty simple. Pay your taxes. Um, Jesus did, and um, there's two very interesting stories where they tried to trap him up. Um, One is in Matthew 17 and the other in Matthew 22. And, of course, they were always trying to trap Jesus, so why not trap him on the tax deal? Um, Matthew 17, 24 through 27. They had come to Capernaum, uh, Jesus' headquarters. Those who collected the two drachma tax, which is the temple tax, came to Peter and said, Did your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And Peter said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. Jesus said first, knowing, of course, Jesus knew all this was going on. What do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From the sons of strangers. From strangers, Peter said. So Jesus said, Consequently, the sons are exempt. Now this has to do with their um, custom at the time of how they paid the taxes and who was responsible. But lest we give any offense to them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and open its mouth, and you will find a stator. Now that's four drachmas. Take that and give it to them for you and me. So two for each. So he paid his taxes. And Matthew 22:15-21. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him again. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, and I love this, they had to fluff up and fall all over him and, and uh, flatter him. Teach him, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one and are not partial to any. So tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now they're picking on the Roman tax. They want to know, well, does he pay the Roman tax? But Jesus, again, he was always a step ahead of him, perceiving their malice, said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? <laughs> Uh, Another word for hypocrite is an actor, because that's what they were doing. 
show me the coin for the poll tax. So they presented him with a denarius, which was the Roman coin, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. So, if the Son of God paid taxes, I guess we should. Um, now, some cringe at the thought of how our government chooses to spend our tax dollars, but this should not deter us. It is not our concern, and we have no control over it. Those who are in authority in such matters will be held accountable to God. So we needn't worry. We need to pay our taxes. This is the money that pays for our military to keep us safe and to maintain the programs in our country that give us the kind of quality of life that we have. So that's the government in a nutshell. Um, the next verse is 8 through 10. It talks about love fulfilling the law. So we're going to read that. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Now, at first glance, these verses sound start out sounding like it's wrong to borrow money because it says, owe nothing to anyone. But the Bible, of course, does not forbid borrowing and lending. Throughout Scripture, borrowing and lending is mentioned many, many times in the Old Testament. The Old Testament had strict laws to safeguard people against extraordinary interest being charged against them. And in the New Testament, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 commands leaders to Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And if you're lending, you're borrowing. If you're borrowing, you're lending. Whatever. So, borrowing is justified, but one must be responsible and pay his debts. But for the Christian, love, love should be what we really owe one another. Our church father, Origen, said it well when he said, love is a debt we never pay off. So Paul tells us to love one another, for love is the fulfillment of the law. Now remember when the lawyer in um, Matthew asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was in, in order to trick him again. Jesus said it was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said that on these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. So there it is. The word love, interestingly, is found 214 times in the New Testament and is attributed to Jesus 62 times just in the Gospels alone. Love is the first on the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Love is defined by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 as being the most important thing to seek. Let's face it, if you love someone as you do yourself, you're never going to want to harm them. Because you wouldn't want to harm yourself. John, John MacArthur, when teaching on this passage, <laughs> said he doesn't have to put uh, notes on his refrigerator to tell him not to yell at his wife or kick the dog, because if he loves them, this will he won't need post-it notes. So, I thought that was kind of cute. But the whole point is, is that if we love, that covers all that. You don't need to make all these rules. I'm not going to talk back. I'm not going to, you know. So, in love... Of course, the definition of love in our day and age is a little different than biblical love. Uh, love is an action verb, not a warm emotional feeling that we see displayed in the movies. It is a commandment by scripture to be done as an act of the will. So if we wait around to feel like we're in the mood, it's probably not going to happen. 
So, and Philippians 2 um, talks about this. Um, and this is the best, this is probably the best example of love. Um, it was, was what Jesus did for us, and he's telling us to follow him. Philippians 2, 1 to 5, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, affection, compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, intent on one purpose, and do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than themselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So I thought that that is probably the most perfect. And it goes on and on to talk about what Jesus did for us and how we need to follow that lead. Um, and First John 4 talks a lot about God is love, and if we love God then we must love one another. Otherwise, we don't belong to God. As much as we want to say we do, we don't. Um, God does provide a special kind of love. Uh, Romans 5, 5 says, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. That love that we have for God, He uses that to love each other. It's not a natural thing. It's something that happens when you're when you when you love the Lord. Um so who's your neighbor? Everybody. Even our enemy. Which throws us back to chapter twelve, which talks about having no vengeance on your on your enemy and praying for your enemy and blessing <laughs> your enemy. Um okay, so now we're gonna go and close out in uh verses eleven through fourteen. And this talks about well I titled it It's time to change your clothes. Um, and this, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to have awakened from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is gone, almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing and in drunkenness and in sexual promiscuity, sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Now, I can't take credit for this one, but someone once said that what sense would it be to put your pajamas on over your day clothes? Um, probably wouldn't make much sense. And the metaphor of putting on and taking off of, of clothing and of Christ is used by Paul in many of his letters in reference to putting away our old deeds and putting on Christ in practical righteousness. Um, in Ephesians 4, 22-24, he makes this reference, that in reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. And then he goes on further in Ephesians, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. 
And he, this, there's a couple of others, Galatians 3, 26-27. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you have been baptized into Christ, spiritually speaking, having clothed yourselves with Christ. And so those are just some passages to say that he uses this metaphor, and it's, it's a perfect metaphor because the taking off of the old and putting on the new um, is just what we should be doing. The verses which mention darkness and light are reference to sin and righteousness. And what Paul is trying to say is when you were saved, that great exchange took place. He took your sin and gave you his righteousness. So in a positional sense, you were clothed with Christ in his righteousness when you were saved. But in our everyday lives, we have to live this out. We have to live out our theology. And each day, we must make sure to put off, take off, or fling off the clothing that belongs to the night, those sinful deeds, and put on our day clothes, which is the practice of holy living. So it doesn't make sense to walk around in your nightwear or your pajamas over your day clothes if you belong to Christ. The fashion world says you are what you wear, but John MacArthur says, An athlete may put on his uniform, a judge may put on a robe, an officer may dress as a soldier, but it's their performance that really counts. So it isn't so much what you look like, it's what you're doing that people are watching. Paul then goes on to give us an impetus to keep putting on Christ in verse 11. Knowing the time, for it is already the hour for you to have awakened from sleep, for now is nearer, now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now the word time here is not clock time, which would be the Greek word chronos, it's rather the word kairos, I don't know if I'm saying it right, which means era or epoch or age, a large span of time. And the salvation he's referring to is the ultimate redemption, the completion of all things. And Paul says it's nearer than when they first believed. Well, guess what? That was 2,000 years ago. So how much closer are we than them? Yes, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ should be a major impetus for holy living. Yet many think he's never going to come. And I like what Second Peter 3, when he talks about this, he says, Second Peter 3, 3 through 9, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues as it was from the beginning of creation. But when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heaven and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And the Lord is not slow about his promise for coming, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. The fact that it hasn't happened yet only proves that we have a loving and kind God that he is patient and slow to bring his wrath, that there might be space for repentance. What about you? Are you ready for his coming? If not, this is the time and place. Trust in Christ and his death on the cross as payment for your sins. And if you're already a believer and you're stuck in your pajamas, it's time to take them off and dress like a Christian by putting on the deeds of the day, being obedient to this word. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that these words are hard. They're hard sayings, hard to do. But you would never ask us to do anything that you don't give us the power to do. And through your Holy Spirit, Lord, we know that we can change our attitudes, change our minds, and change our ways in order to be pleasing to you. Lord, we thank you for every lady here, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.